0: Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, this podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. On this episode, meet Marianne Lewis, co-author of the breakthrough new book from the Harvard Business Review Press, Both and Thinking, embracing creative tensions to solve your toughest problems. In the
1: work that we've done with lots of colleagues, and we have colleagues globally, we find that there are three um, factors in the world that intensify the experience of tensions. Meaning, are, are the likelihood you're going to feel caught in a tug of war, and there are three things: it's change, scarcity, and plurality. Right, the faster t- tomorrow today becomes tomorrow, the, the kind of speed you're talking about. Okay. Scarcity, that feeling that you have less to work with and more ex- higher expectations, and plurality means multiple stakeholders. And we are in the perfect storm, so I don't think it's surprising okay. at all yeah. that. As you said, it feels unprecedented. I, I, I agree. And it might just keep you know, moving in that direction that this is the new norm.
0: Let's listen to my exclusive interview with Marianne right now. Marianne, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? I am doing well, Michael. So
1: glad to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining me. Where am I finding you today?
1: I am in my home base in Cincinnati, Cincinnati, Ohio.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'm here to, uh, we're here to talk about uh, your, your new book, Hot Off the Shelves, available today. But uh, before we do that, let's um, let's talk about you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your personal professional journey, and, and your academic focuses as a researcher.
1: Great. Well, thank you. Uh, I am an academic. I'm a professor of management and leadership. Um, I started my career at the University of Cincinnati And then ended up actually as a dean in London at the uh, City University of London for four years, and then returned just recently back to Cincinnati to be dean of the Lindner College of Business here. In terms of my research, uh, I really started by studying automation, uh, and then I shifted to innovation in product development and some other realms. But across these different topical uh, focus of my work was this underlying theme of tensions. I just saw them everywhere, um, leaders grappling with competing demands, feeling paralyzed, cotton tug of wharves. and I kept hearing this common language. And very early in my career, I did a, a deep dive into um, the idea of the concept of paradox, which has been around for a very long time, mm-hmm. as in thousands of years, um, yeah. from Greek philosophers to um, Lao Tzu, uh, and that just Which took is, me it, on, uh, is
0: it Barry sorry? Barry Swartz, The paradox of choice. When I think of a book with that,
1: yes, that's a it's a great example. Barry's book yeah. on paradox yeah. of choice, and it's been. I mean, Barry's a good example. As long as this uh, this concept has been around, it's really much more recent that we've seen it in business and organizational studies. But it's fascinating uh, to me th- looking at tensions as paradox changes the way we think
0: interesting now you did skip over one element you're a fulbright scholar i wanted to talk to you about your your journey did you always want to be an academic and and how did you find your way into the the work you do today whether you know the old saying uh, yogi bear right when you come to a fork in the road take it tell me about <laughs> that a little bit
1: uh no it, it's a great question um i am an academic brat by that i mean my father uh who, who is still alive, but he was an academic of uh, mm-hmm. a, a rather accomplished academic at, at, Stanford, Harvard and INSEAD. And so my rebellion, Michael was, I was not going to be an academic. I was going to be a practitioner. I was going to do business instead of study business. And when I get into my MBA at Indiana, at the Kelly school, I, i realized I was focusing at least as much, if not quite a bit more on how they were teaching and these underlying theories Um, than on the what. And so as all my MBA colleagues were starting to look for their Wall Street internships, I decided, you know what, I'm going to take this summer and work with a faculty member on Mm -hmm. research. And sure enough, I realized sometimes, you know, the apple doesn't fall far (laughs) and it it ended up happening. And I've loved it. It's been a wonderful career. And the Fulbright was uh, actually an interesting opportunity. Mm i left for my Fulbright in 2014 to write this book and, you know, serendipity happens. And I ended up being a Dean in London. And so I put this book on the back burner for a while, um, Mm. to really actually practice what I profess and practice leading. And I love it. I mean, it's very hard. I mean, anybody you talk to on leadership will say you live and swim in tensions. Um, but it felt, it feels good to, you know, manage my own tension between theory and practice. I think it makes me better at both, or at least it makes me learn.
0: Yeah, Maybe we, don't have, go, we don't have to go far in our lives or professional, professional lives or personalized to find paradox. So that's why I was no, so uh, interested and in, in looking forward to our conversation. So the new book with your co-author, Wendy Smith, is yes. Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems. Tell me about your co-author for, for a few minutes.
1: Oh, Wendy Smith is tremendous. Wendy and I met, uh, when she was actually finishing her PhD at Harvard, uh, business school and realized we were both seeing paradoxes everywhere. At the time she was studying, um, major changes at IBM and how they were managing innovation, uh, both bold, uh, innovations for tomorrow, as well as keeping the trains running today. Um, and we started collaborating and that was 20 years ago. Um, we've, We've obviously worked with other colleagues along the mm-hmm, way, but mm-hmm. always ended up being really primary co-authors for each other. Um, and she is at the University of Delaware now.
0: Talk about the tradecraft of the book. You mentioned it earlier that you kind of got kind of to put it on hold. Um, but how did you approach writing the book, bringing it to life? I think I, I couldn't find another book. You, you, you're a contributor, but is this your first book? And so take me through a little sure. bit of the tradecraft and, and why you thought there was finally space on the shelf for it. And, and, and importantly, who did you write the book for? Who is this an academic tomb or is this something that, that should be on the desks of, of leaders from? Uh, uh, you asked great questions,
1: Michael. I mean, it, you, you are right. It is it is both mine and Wendy's first book that is a non-academic book. You might find us at, we did an Oxford handbook and some other pieces, but we've always been academics. So we've been publishing for the top academic journals um, for 20 plus years and in fact, the first book I said, I, I probably wrote two thirds of it in 2014 was an academic book. Hmm. But what we've seen, particularly over the past probably two to three years, is the language of paradox and both and all over the place. We've seen um Deloitte's using it. Uh, Barclays, uh, Wendy is a Yale graduate and they actually, they use both and in their marketing Mm. and we realized, okay, a lot of people are starting to see what we've seen in the practitioner world, but it's one thing to use the words. It's another thing to know what they mean and how you approach it and how do you go beyond a label to actually the practice of both and thinking And so we felt like Michael, it was the time there was, you know, as you said, space on the shelf because people were needing a deeper dive into the how. And what does it really mean to be a both and thinker? How does the, how do paradoxes play into our lives, our, our leadership, our organizations? So we took this as a time. I, we completely rewrote what I wrote in 2014 to your question about audience and said, Actually, we had a couple of questions. Our first question was, you know, clearly we are business professors. So we've been studying paradoxes, competing demands, tensions in organizations, in business leadership. And as we've been doing that throughout, we see them in our own lives We've spoken with many a leader who ends up turning the table and starting to talk about the tensions between work and family, Mm -hmm. self and other. We get into all sorts of much, much more individual personal tensions. And it really shifted our focus in this book to say, it needs to be for everyone. And it's more of, it's a big idea book rather than a business book. And that challenged Wendy and me Mm -hmm. to in our language, in our skills. I mean, as I said, we've written for the academic journals. This is not an academic book. It's not meant for that. It really is meant to say, you, you felt them. You, you know what the tug of war feels like. It can feel paralyzing. It can feel polarizing. How do, you, how do you navigate? How do you work through? And that's what we're hoping this is doing. It's bringing some life and practicalities to some language we're hearing increasingly.
0: It's such an uh, it's such a fascinating time. I'd call it unprecedented. Maybe it's unprecedented. I don't know. We all in our generations all think everything's unprecedented. Uh, you know, coming out of the COVID era, where you know leadership and leaders discovered suddenly they could make decisions much quicker. I talked to lots of CEOs who said, "Oh my goodness, if I could only bottle that that thing in my organization." You know, we were making decisions that would take us years, and we were making them in days. And you know, right now, I think of the paradox of the the work from home. Mm-hmm. Movement, the restructuring of work and and you know there's lots of pros and cons or paradoxes within that framework take us to the central premise of the book the tensions the paradoxes you know they're nothing new we i mean you know we're dealing with high inflation low unemployment they, they're mm-hmm. they with us uh writ large but take us through the central premise of the book and and this both and thinking model
1: sure so um I- I'll, I'll go one step a little bit before and because I think you started to touch on it, Michael, is in the work that we've done with lots of colleagues and we have colleagues globally, we find that there are three um, factors in the world that intensify the experience of tensions, meaning are, are the likelihood you're going to feel caught in a tug of war. And there are three things. It's change, scarcity and plurality. Right. The faster t- tomorrow today becomes tomorrow, the, the kind of speed you're talking about, mm-hmm. scarcity, that feeling that you have less to work with and more ex- higher expectations, and plurality means multiple stakeholders. And we are in the perfect storm. So I don't think it's surprising at all that, yeah. as you said, it feels unprecedented. I, I, I agree, and it might just keep you know, moving in that direction, that this is the new norm. Mm. But when I talk about paradoxes, when Wendy and I think about this, if if we think about, uh, t- uh, say, what feels like a dilemma, right, that we d- do we uh, focus on hitting our targets today or do we focus on bold innovation for tomorrow, right? right. That's a classic one that she and I both studied in various ways. That today and tomorrow, short-term, long-term innovation um, performance – we don't we tend to think about those as either or we pull them apart and are trying to do a classic kind of formal logic let's weigh the pros and cons and decide today what are we going to focus on and sometimes there's real value to just a good either or uh, approach the problem in this case, though, is that those are really, in our view, two sides of the same coin. So when we the, the term paradox, uh, the way we simply define it, is more it's interwoven contradictions that persist. So. These are, think yin yang, right? That the light informs the dark. It actually shapes each other. They flow into one another. We could make a decision today that, you know what? We got to hit the targets. Let's just buckle down and focus on production and efficiencies. But we're going to have to face the same question tomorrow or the next day and say, boy, there's a lot of technological change. Maybe we better be putting serious investment into innovation. And we're going to, we're going to juggle with both sides of those coins ongoing. And really, if you think about that particular one as a paradox, right? Our day-to-day functions are exactly what funds the basic R&D, the more radical, risky innovation that we're going to do. You've got to be paying the bills. And at the same time, those radical innovations are going to become your – fundamental foundational products of tomorrow so that today and tomorrow really plays off of each other. And we could do the same with lots of other uh, Mm -hmm. paradoxes that we see quite a bit, you know, global, local, Uh, you and I were talking about it a little earlier, the social and financial demands on firms and on our lives, Mm -hmm. self and other. I mean, it's a long list, but the difference to us is how do you move beyond thinking of this as a trade-off to a paradox? And that changes the way we we play with both sides and their interconnections.
0: It's so interesting because it it reminds me of of interviews I've done recently. Dan Pink, The Power of Regret. Mm -hmm. Soon you, I interviewed last week, the benefits of friction. You know, us retailers are talking about taking friction out, right? But he's saying, hey, you know, it's not such a bad thing to slow things down every now and then. It feels like what you're saying is that there's a power in mastering these contradictions and recognizing the reality. Talk more about that. And, you know, what are some of the tools that you can, you can give that, uh, the, the folks listening can say, you know, I think I can, I can apply this, what, what, you know, call them mm-hmm. a framework or a rubric or a sure. tool. What, what advice do you have?
1: Well, I think the first piece is, is, I think it's the first part of your question is, you know, the power behind it. Um, we see paradoxes as a double-edged sword, right? They can be absolutely paralyzing to people. How in the world do I, you know, work through the tug of war? But they can, that creative friction we see again and again is really positive and powerful. Now it might be uncomfortable initially, but it's how you work through that that friction. Um, the example I, I often think of is one of my early studies with with Paul Pullman at Unilever when he was developing their um, sustainable living plan, and he would talk all the time about you know, okay, so our, our, the goals were very clear for him. We're going to double our profit and cut in half our environmental footprint. And everybody would say, you know, Paul, it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Right. And he said, no, we touch 2 billion consumers a day. It has to work that way. So then the question is how, all right, we're announcing a new product. Say we're, we're, we're going into, into a community in Africa. Now the question is how, what's that going to do for the market? How are you going to raise sales? How are you going to grow profit? And at the same time, how will you reduce water, reduce energy, um, manage uh, transportation, um, pollution on that side? And he was always trying to push, get the tensions on the table. He would say, if people would come to me, with a clear cut. Oh, we do X. He would say, go, go look harder. Tell me the opposing ways that we could do it. Tell me every challenge. And it feels uncomfortable because you might have conflict. You might have to have real debate, but the view is, and I completely agree with Pullman on this. We don't have our best selves if we don't have the variety of options on the table that really push us out of our current thinking. So you asked about, um, tools. We, we, Develop something from a lot of work that we've done and others. We call in the book the paradox system. And we really think there are four tools for just sake of memory. We we think about them as A, B, C, D. Uh, A is assumptions, B is boundaries, C is comfort, and D is dynamic. And if I do it just simply, the A for assumptions is about we need to change our mindset. What do we assume is going on? And how do we question that right off the bat? And the biggest step to this is we have to start changing the questions we ask. When we say, do, when we, when we build out an either or question, we say, well, should we focus on sustainability or on profit? You've immediately limited your possibilities mm. just by the way you frame that question. In terms of B, which is boundaries, then it's how do you put a framework around that? So you're holding them together. You know, I'm, I'm using the Pullman Unilever example here, but right, he had very specific, and obviously it was a great team at Unilever. They had metrics on both the profitability and the sustainability side. So every time you went into a new product or a new growth strategy, you had to complete in a framework, both sides of that equation to demonstrate it. It held them together. The C is for comfort. And that is because tensions are emotional. They're uncomfortable. And our defensive reaction when we're uncomfortable is to go for something simple, clear, and focused, which is nine times out of 10 going to be give me an either or so I can move on. Mm. It's just, it's short lived and it's limited. And then the D for dynamics is, you know, we really push ourselves and others to think about dynamic balancing. Because paradoxes aren't going away, you might be solving a problem, but it's it's not permanent. So dynamics is about how do you consistently and continually experiment, push the envelope. You know, uh, with Pullman and a lot of other Uh, leaders we talk to, they say one of the challenges of being a paradoxical leader is that people can say, I don't know, are you sending mixed messages? Mm, Are you waffling? mm. And the the trick that we've seen from a variety of leaders is they're very clear. It is both. And I'm going to keep reminding you, we are doing multiple things simultaneously. And today I might say, I need you to focus on X, but I need you to understand you're focusing on X because tomorrow we're probably going to focus on Y and they go together. Hmm. and so it's a consistency but for hmm. us the paradox system is a set of tools that we found really helps um, leaders teams and organizations work through navigate these paradoxes
0: in the book you've got uh, several examples of of course being here in Canada I wanted to, to hmm. ask you particularly about the Fogo Island example take us through that
1: the Fogo Island example is just a uh, beautiful Zeta Cobb um was a study that actually uh Wendy did uh with another colleague and um Cobb was really looking at, okay, so how do I, how do I help a community as people are really leaving Fogo Island? It needs an economic rejuvenation, but a, a community very proud of their roots, understandably mm-hmm. so, a really rich tradition from cod fishing to their crafts. And so they had had lots of debates. I mean, they had started things on Fogo Island like, you know, um, a scholarship program, and, and Zita had started this herself, but then what she found is well, wait a minute, it was encouraging for the people of Fogo Island, but then they left to go to college and they didn't come back. I need to do something right. on the island itself. So the Fogo Island Inn is just, I, I, to me, it is a symbol of paradox. She built this remarkably luxurious inn on what um, she calls one of the four corners of the globe. And it is a combination of the most beautiful, high-tech, uh, extravagantly luxurious um. Elements and at the same time, it is. They're all the crafts from the um, bed sheets and and comforters to the art on the walls is all local. The local uh, members of the community actually serve as hosts for the guests that come to the Fogo Island Inn. And it's this blending of Mm. the future and the past and the global possibilities because people come from around the world um, to the inn and meet the locals. And as the locals are sharing just the power of that local community, and its traditions so i think it's just a really beautiful example of the ebb and flow of past and present and traditions and innovation
0: or well, even even the modern architecture that's nestled into the rugged beauty of oh
1: it's so beautiful you know, oh, yeah, you've yeah, seen it too island.
0: oh yeah yeah, oh, yeah yeah my my brother's actually been there and and oh really it has gone and and uh, it was one of this kind of uh bucket list goals as it is for me actually so let's talk about something else that worked i don't know sure less so brexit let's talk about brexit mm. um was there a better way i mean it became a very i, I is another word or framework you have polarized and mm-hmm. um, well it it wound up one way i mean there has been a, a brexit was there a better way i mean you you were living there so you got must- you've got some very uh hands-on and you lived in that environment what's your, was your if they would have had your book then we'd really be in a better place now <laughs>
1: well and it 's interesting because um, I write in the book of an experience Mar- Mario Barroso, who is um, the president of the European Commission, came and spoke at, at my business school and when I was there and it was it was just after the vote and i just I had a wonderful dinner, a private dinner with him and some others afterwards and and hearing his take on it was fascinating as well I mean so you know obviously hindsight is two thousand and twenty and we can look back, but there are a lot of parallels for other political polarization we see. Um, I mean, I was a newbie. I had started this, the, my Dean's role six months before and, you know, Brexit, the vote is starting to rev up and I am talking to anybody and everybody I can to understand yeah. what's at stake here. What are, what are the issues? How are, and Oh, it was complex, Michael. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, the, complexity, the, Merle. nuances, the, yeah. and the emotions behind it. And similar to some things like, like the U S political, uh, situation, it, it had polarized to a very simple, clear, we're leaving or we're staying, yeah. right? And, it, and the simplicity around both of those completely negated what would become, I mean, I still think it's thousands upon thousands of pages of contracts that they're still working through. And I'm not saying necessarily what the vote happened, but it wasn't it they never got to a very nuanced complicated interesting discussion for the voters let alone within parliament mm. because it had polarized to this we, we are leaving because it's patriotic versus we're staying for the for global because leadership economics
0: because it's but, economic right, right and
1: economics and it was it was much more than that i mean the, the more people i spoke to about it the more i thought i would love to hear us have a real debate around all of the complexities and nuances. This isn't mm. a, it, it wasn't as simple as it was. Um, and, and the, the story I tell in this book, I just, Oh my gosh, I remember it like it was yesterday mm. Two two of the people who had helped me just better understand the, the intricacies of Brexit were two of my board members at, it was the Cass business school. It was recently named Bay's business school. So, and these two uh, leaders were on both sides of the debate and were incredibly b- brilliant mm. business leaders and could explain lots of reasons and complications of why they felt that it, it. when you have to come to a vote, this is why they wanted one or the other. Okay. And so I understood from their view, the two, their, their two different votes. And so we are walking after Mario, uh, um, Barroso had, had spoken And I'm walking kind of between them. And one of the gentlemen says um, to Manuel Barroso, he says, well, I mean, those people who voted to leave are uh, ignorant, racist. I I can't remember the slew of expletives he used. And I'm sitting here next to the other gentleman who I know (laughs) was that person and wasn't anything that this man just said. I mean, just nothing. It was, and without even batting an eye, Jose Manuel Barroso just looks at him and smiles and said, ah, it is such a complicated issue. I'm sorry we couldn't have had richer discussions. Let's have that conversation more at dinner. And as he said it, I I thought I was going to have a fist fight between (laughs) me. And instead, the other gentleman smiled and laughed, and he said something like, spoken like a true statesman. And then we proceeded to have a really intellectual, Mm. fascinating, and challenging dinner conversation um but it made me think oh i would like I, I would hope that we could open ourselves to have more of those conversations mm-hmm. because there's a ra- it's a rare political decision that isn't complicated right that right. isn't nuanced right. they
0: are by the, they are by their nature right they I are mean, by their nature. there's very few clear-cut yes everyone wants uh action on climate change but of course you know there's lots of stakeholders and lots of different ways to approach it and now I I have to ask you were you convinced one way or the other I mean you can you're now sitting safely in uh, Cincinnati so uh, were you convinced one way or the other was it the right thing to do or did you even form an opinion
1: I I mean because I don't know that I formed a full opinion I mean I thought it was very risky to leave because of the host of economic, mm-hmm. but also very human. I mean, there were so many reasons to, to stay, um, including the original reasons of why the European was developed in the first place, mm-hmm. which was, which was much more about um, political stability uh, it, and economic stability in the region to avoid what, you know, World War III. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that I would take a stance on that because I certainly, I did understand the very real concerns by, by a number of people who felt that it was time to leave. And, and some did that under the great hopes that it could help mobilize needed change in the European Union. Whether that happens or not is a, is a different story, too.
0: Mm. Yeah, that feels feels like there's another actor that's pretty prominent in driving change in that right now. I think so. And, <laughs> and let's bring this uh, conversation home for the retailers. So, sure. you know, listen, they're constantly, we're constantly vexed by customers who want everything, won't pay for it, say one thing, do something different. Give me, you, you know, you've, you've, Given us a great framework ABCD, but give me Mm -hmm. any words of wisdom or advice for the retailers listening about how they can approach this paradox within your model.
1: I I think uh, if there were three kind of steps to take, and and I've seen them in in a variety of ways, uh, I'll give you an example in a minute. But I would say you need to change the question. You know, whatever debate it is that feels like a tug of war find an and question there, then separate and connect. Can you pull apart both elements and really dig down to understand the value of each side and their limitations if taken to an extreme and then find their connections? And then lastly, take it decisions that let you stay agile and continue to learn and mm. adapt. Um the retail example, and, and it's I'm stretching it maybe to be retail, but my um my board chair in London was Mutar Kent, who at the time was the um chair of uh, Coca-Cola, CEO and chair of Coca-Cola. And one of the paradoxes that we would often talk about is the global local tension. Sure, Because, sure. you know, Coke is was were always working to be... The, they're one of the most visible brands in the world, mm-hmm. right? Leveraging that scale, making sure that they're being authentic. And if you've ever been to the Coca-Cola Museum in Atlanta, you know they have hundreds, if not thousands, of flavors and tastes because local variations matter and being yeah. respectful, right? So how do you pull apart... Okay, we want to make sure that... We want to leverage our global brand so that we respect, honor and support local variations, right? He would, he would talk about different ways that you could be both because he didn't want to ever water down the global red can. And at the same time, wanted to make sure whether it was their supply chains, their retailers on the ground or the actual tastes of the product worked in the local markets. And how do you play those? And he would, you know, pull those apart and really think about what's the value of the, of the brand, what's the value of scale, and what's the limitation if you take it too far. Who do you who do you negate? Mm-hmm. Who do you marginalize? And at the same, on the flip side, yes, local matters. And how do you build those variations? But if you take that too far, you've lost the opportunities to build efficiencies that keep it priced within range, whatever the market. Right. So he, playing both of those. And, you know, I love a leader like Mutar and so many others. They have this confident humility that, yes, I'm going to make a decision today and, and we're probably going to adjust tomorrow because times change quickly. The shelf, everything from shelving to the supply chains, to how we market in the metaverse, it's all going to continue changing. So we're going to stay agile in that process.
0: Well, my guest is Marianne Lewis. The book is both and thinking, embracing creative tensions to solve your toughest problems. Available wherever you love to buy your books. Marianne, what's the best way to keep up with what you uh, what you're working on, what you're doing? Are uh, you a LinkedIn person? What's the best way to follow? What I am. You're
1: doing? I'm on. Uh, I'm on all, LinkedIn. I would say is probably the best, or Twitter. Um, you can find the book on Amazon, but really any of your local uh, bookstores as well. And I just appreciate the chance, Michael, to to speak with you. Great questions it always provoke my thinking
0: well it's great discussion i really uh, was looking forward to it and i uh, wish you continued success and i uh, recommend i've had i've had the chance to have a copy of the early release of the book and i'd recommend it to anybody listening as thank you very much essential 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 reading in these times as in others so once again uh, listen have a great uh, rest of your day and and weekend and thanks again for joining me on the voice of retail podcast great thank you michael Thanks for tuning in to this special episode of The Voice of Retail. If you haven't already, be sure and click and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so new episodes will land automatically twice a week. And check out my other retail industry media properties, The Remarkable Retail Podcast, Conversations with Commerce Next Podcast, and The Food Professor Podcast with Dr. Sylvain Charlevoix. Last but not least, if you're into barbecue, check out my all-new YouTube barbecue show, Last Request Barbecue, with new episodes each and every week. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, president of Emmy LeBlanc Company and Maven Media. And if you're looking for more content or want to chat, follow me on LinkedIn or visit my website at emileblanc.co. Have a safe week, everyone.